Good morning. Well, you guys did pretty well after all that snow yesterday getting in. Uh, I know that whenever someone plans a winter wedding, wedding this is exactly the kind of scenario uh, that people get nervous about. Uh, so I have married both of my children at some point in time in the past. And I can tell you that a wedding is, uh, can be anyway, an all-consuming event. Uh, it is where all of our attention, our free time, our internet searches, and all of our money go. As uh, I was just watching, I was just flipping uh, through the channels, uh, metaphorically speaking, and uh, I saw the father of the bride with Steve Martin was on, and, and, and I loved it. I just so happened to tune into the scene where he is given the news by Frank, his wedding coordinator, that it's going to be like $535 a person, you know, for people to come to this wedding. And, uh, and, and he starts calling the invitation list, you know, uh, to figure out how few people. And he's, he's morbidly thrilled when he realizes one of the people in the stack has died. He's like, all right, you know. And his, and his wife and daughter just look at him like, really? Has it gotten to this point? That you're thankful one of our relatives has died. Yes, sometimes a wedding can be like that. It is in many ways the most expensive four hours of a person's life. Uh, and, uh, you know, my part, I've done plenty of weddings. Generally, they, they go just fine. If it doesn't go fine, I'm usually at fault. Uh, I, uh, I start crying at the wrong mo moment or lose my place or say something I shouldn't have said or something. I know you'll find that shocking. Uh, but uh, anyway, but of course, uh, we all know now that weddings are predominantly about the pictures anyway. So... Uh, as long as I stand there still enough for the picture to get taken, usually everything is just fine. Uh, but that was not the way weddings were in the first century, at least not in Israel. The weddings uh, that would have happened then would not have been something you would have called the list or been exclusive about who came. It was really something for your entire community. And so you would have invited your neighbors. Uh, as a matter of fact, in reading about uh, this text this week, I loved it. Commentators were quick to point out that you even invited people you didn't like. And the social protocol was such that even if you disdained the family, you still went because you wouldn't want to disrespect them. I don't understand how those things work exactly, but it was a community event. And here this wedding that we read about is happening in a place called Cana. We don't know exactly where that was. There are two theories. One is that it's a small village about four, four and a half miles north of Nazareth. Another theory says, no, it's a, it's a village that was a little further away, more uh, like nine miles away from Nazareth. But it, whatever it was, it was something that was a significant event, so much so that uh, Jesus' mother is there, and Jesus is there, and his brand new five disciples are there. Uh, as we see that uh, this wedding takes place at the end of the first week of the ministry of Jesus as recorded in the book of John. As a matter of fact, you notice that our text begins with on the third day, uh, which means uh, on the third day after the events just recorded, the story with Nathaniel that we looked at last week. When you total up all those days, starting from the day that this commission came out to ask John the Baptist who he, who he was and what he was doing, all the way to the wedding of Canaan, you have a week. 
And many people say that's not an accident. It's very intentional. This is showing us the completeness of the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And where does he find himself? At a wedding. Now, let's get a couple things out of the way before we uh, get into the main two things I want us to see in this text. Uh, just preview, it is the complete freedom uh, in Jesus and secondly, the overflowing joy that we will find in him. That's what we're going to look at. Just a couple of little Bible geek kind of things that we need to cover though as we look at this text. Uh, first of all, uh, is this interesting interchange between Jesus and his mother. Notice that the text does not name her. John, interestingly enough, never names Jesus' mother. He never uses the name Mary. Uh, some people say it's because he didn't want her confused with other Marys. We really don't know why he didn't. He just calls her Jesus' mother. Jesus' mother comes to Jesus with what seems to be uh, sort of a catering disaster. They have no more wine. Now, we have no idea why Mary was concerned about this, how she knew about it, why she felt responsible for it. We really don't know. But it gives commentators something to write pages and pages about. Uh, but at the end of the day, they all say, we, we just don't know. She could have been a member of the family, a family friend. To be honest, I grew up Southern Baptist. She should, could have just been a woman who found herself where the food was being prepared, and she got all into it. Uh, trust me, I've had, I have had Baptist women bustle out of the kitchen in the fellowship hall, all in a tizzy about the soup running low. And they weren't responsible for anything, they, but they were in a tizzy nonetheless. We have no idea. But what's interesting is that Mary comes to Jesus with this. Most people believe that at this point in time, uh, that it is very possible that Joseph has died and that Mary has been accustomed to leaning on Jesus, her oldest child, uh, for what she needs. And so it would have been natural for her uh, to tell her son, who she depends on in many ways, uh, about this situation. What really throws people is the way Jesus responds to her. Notice uh, with us uh, in verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is a very interesting expression. One, he doesn't call her mother. Uh, now, the term he uses, uh, to be honest, uh, D.A. Carson says it's probably closest related uh, to the expression we hear in the South. I certainly heard it all my life, ma'am. Uh, ma'am, you know, which of course sometimes children would say to their mothers, but we would say generally to any woman uh, who was older than us, yes ma'am, no ma'am, uh, what can I do for you ma'am, would you like any more sweet tea ma'am, uh, you know, would you like more chocolate syrup on that ma'am, you know, those sorts of things, that's why they in the south not only are more polite but have type 2 diabetes. Um, <laughs> If I'm lying, I'm dying. I mean, that is the deal. And so it's not an impolite term. It is unusual that, he, that he's calling his mother ma'am, essentially. And then this expression translated, what does this have to do with me, is a translation of an idiomatic expression that, that what, what do we have to do with one another? It's a way of saying, why are you talking to me about this? You know, what is, what is the connection between what you're saying and, and me? And, 
and people are confounded by that. But real quickly, because I know some of you love this stuff, let me just throw in the reason why Jesus speaks to her this way is because his public ministry has begun and he is making clear right at the beginning of it uh, that from now on the primary way that his mother needs to relate to him as, is as the word who has become flesh to exhibit the glory of God and not as her biological child. We see other gospel accounts uh, tell stories about Jesus's family coming uh, to him and he turns to those around and says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who hear my words and believe them, they are my mother, brothers and sisters. Jesus is making a clear distinction that he understands that his primary relationship is between himself and his heavenly father. And Mary needs to grow in her understanding of that. Their relationship it's still precious, it's still important, but it has changed. And I love that. And so I know that you're wondering about that, so I'm covering that. Now, now let's, now let's get into our two main things that we want to talk about. One is that this passage talks about the complete freedom that we see in Christ, and secondly, the overflowing joy in Him. Notice, if you will, as you look at this text, that I have just told you about all we know about the people who are there. There are only a few other characters that are mentioned. They are all anonymous. Uh, we have servants unnamed. We have a master of ceremonies unnamed. We have a bridegroom unnamed. In other words, these details are not important to John. But there are details that are incredibly important to John. It is really fascinating, isn't it? In verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now that is a very specific detail. Notice all of the information uh, John the Evangelist gives us uh, about these water jars. One, there are six. They're not seven. They're not five. They're not four. They're six. Secondly, they are stone. Now, uh, you may not have picked up on this, but writers are quick to point out that they're stone because stone jars cannot become unclean. And so they are the perfect vessels for holding water that is used for purification rites. In this quick picture, John zooms in on the presence of these six very large jars. We even know how big they are, even though he, of course, didn't use the measurement gallons. Uh, people who know such things say that uh, we're talking about 20 or 30 gallons. That's a whole lot of water. Uh, if you can do the math real fast, six times, if it's on the 20 side, is 120 gallons of water. If it's on the 30-gallon side, it's 150 gallons of water. That's, that's a lot of water. And here in Colorado, we know about the importance of water. But why was there so much water? Well, John says it's for the purification rites. What would those purification rites included? They would have included the ceremonial washing of hands. Uh, they would wash one side, they would wash the other, they would clean uh, the palm with the fist, and they would do this before the meals and often between courses in a meal. Uh, it might be used to wash the dirt or mud off the feet of those who had traveled to the home. There was so much water because this was a big gathering. 
and all of the washing that needed to happen in order for people to feel like that they were doing what was necessary for them to be in a right standing before God, for them to have a ceremonial cleanliness uh, that would have enabled them to enjoy all of that fellowship with other people uh, without compunction. And so here is where John focuses our attention, and this is where I believe that we see our first idea, and that is the complete freedom that is in Jesus. Notice what Jesus says in verse 7. He says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine... And did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What, is, what, what happened? This is just a remarkable story. Now, let's be honest. We live in a world uh, that uh, there are some people, I'd say that, uh, there are fewer now than there actually were 20 years ago, weirdly enough, who just don't like miracles. They don't like the idea that, that God who created all things has the power, as C.S. Lewis said, to speed up the wine-making process. Uh, you know, I loved it. He said, why are we surprised that Jesus can turn water into wine? God does it every day. He just does it over the period of weeks and months of time as the water falls from the sky in the form of rain and waters the earth, which grows the grapes, uh, which then get put into vats, and over time it becomes wine. He says, is, are we so concerned if God speeds up that process? He speeds it up quite a bit, you know. But I don't know that we have as much of a problem with miracles today as maybe we had 20 years ago. But here is this miraculous thing. The water in the pots has become wine. What is John trying to say? Remember, he drew our attention to not only the fact that there were pots of water there, but how big, how many, and what they were used for. Here we see that Jesus has transformed an object that was about feeling like you were okay with God and ceremonially pure in your community, and he has transformed them for a new purpose altogether. I love it that here he says to fill them all the way up, and the text specifically says they filled them to the brim. In other words, what is happening in this moment is Jesus is fulfilling the purposes for those water pots. Those water pots were designed so that people through all of the washings would feel better and better about their standing before God and in their spiritual community because they had done everything necessary to be considered what the Bible calls holy. Jesus by taking all of this water, 120 to 150 gallons of water, and making it into wine is saying we don't need the water of purification anymore. This is a radical statement. This is a beautiful illustration of what John 
the evangelist says in John chapter 1, verse 17. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In a very beautiful, pictured way, Jesus is saying we don't need the water jars for purification anymore. That time is in the past. Because of my coming and because of what I will do, we can now repurpose the jars that contain the water. Now how? How can he say or mean such a thing? And we, as we go through John, we're going to see this over and over again. So this is just the first, which is introducing us to a theme of what Jesus will declare that he is doing. And that is, that is putting an end to the old way of thinking and performing in terms of our relationship with God. The key is in this thing he says to his mother. Notice what he says. At the end of this woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that expression, my hour, uh, while the word hour is just a normal word for hour, in the book of John, it is a word that is referring to a time in Jesus' life. You can see reference uh, just a few, chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 23, and verse 27, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. And when Jesus uses this expression, my hour, he's talking about the hour at the end of his life, that time where he will be arrested and tortured and crucified, that time where he will bear the weight and penalty of sin upon himself, that time in which he will, after three days, be raised from the dead and eventually be uh, ascended into heaven where he will sit at the right hand of God uh, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead, the old creed says. When he talks about my hour, he's talking about that time when his glory and his purpose will be seen in its HD, crystal clear sense. Why has the word become flesh to die for the sins of those who God would call unto himself, those that would express faith, those who in John chapter 1, it says, will believe in him and become the children of God. That is how he can say that the time for the need of ceremonial cleansing is past because he knows his hour is coming. You see, here in this miracle, we see pictured what Jesus' ministry is about. It's about bringing freedom from that constant experience of not measuring, measuring up, not being good enough, not having done enough, not having known enough, not having performed enough. And Jesus is saying clearly, that time is in the past. I bring a time of perfect and complete freedom. Because in my hour, I will do what all of the washing could never do. I love it. Hermann uh, Ritterboss, 
He said it this way, For now there is a wine as plentiful as water, indeed as plentiful as all the water of purification which has flowed continually, but cannot take away the sin of the world. In this miracle, we see a parable. Now, by calling it that, I'm not saying it didn't happen. It absolutely happened. But I'm saying Jesus uses it to draw attention to this reality that all the waters of purification could never make pure. But because of his hour, because of his hour, we can be right with God. We sing it over and over. I I love uh, the the song that we uh, sing, let us sing uh, in joy and wonder. And, uh, and I love that song, but I'll be honest, the first few times I heard that song, whether in the old version that you'll find in the Trinity Hymnal or the newer tune that we sang this morning, uh, it's the repetition of, he has cleansed us with his blood. He has cleansed us with his blood. He has cleansed us with his blood. I'm like, you said that already. Right? I mean, it, it repeats, you know, with slight modifications. And I grew up Baptist, for goodness sake. The blood flowed down the aisles in that church. You know, metaphorically speaking. I mean, if we were arguing about the carpet, it might flow down the aisle. You never know. Why so much about the blood? Because that is how purification has for all time been accomplished for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Why do I talk about it in terms of complete freedom? Because I think many of us are still living, at least partially, in bondage to the erroneous and outdated idea that we have to perform or act or think or know enough in order to be right with God, in order to be acceptable, in order to fit into the people of God. And what this is showing us is that time has passed. You are completely, utterly, and perfectly accepted before God because of the work of Jesus Christ in his hour, his death, resurrection, and ascension. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done for you that you can be right now and forever before God. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that up here, I don't always experience it in here. I know that Jesus has done what all the water of purification could have never done and made me perfectly right with God, but I still think God might have a bad attitude toward me if I haven't done so well today. If I didn't control my tongue as well as I should have. If I didn't do everything I had the opportunity to do. If I you know, had thoughts that I regret having and I might even say to myself, well, maybe, maybe I should just feel bad about that for another few hours or another day before I feel okay coming before God in prayer, even in repentance and in faith because, you know, I'm sure God is upset with me. And of course, that comes from our experience in human relationships, right? I mean, let's imagine, it's not that hard to imagine, 
that Karen and I, my wife, and I are having a lovely day. We're outside. It's beautiful. There's no snow on the ground. Uh, it's 65 degrees, and we're having a lovely day. And uh, let's just say, you know, for example, I'm just trying to think of something that would, of course, never happen, but, uh, but could happen. And, uh, and she makes a comment, and for whatever reason, that comment strikes me the wrong way. And I respond with something like, you know, you sound just like your mother when you say that. I'm not even saying anything against her mother. I like her mother just fine. But I'm telling you, that expression is going to end the good day right there. Right? Because, of course, the immediate follow-up question to my statement is, what are you saying about my mother? Right? And now you're, you're like, oh, okay, I didn't mean your mother. I meant somebody's mother. Right? Right? And then, and then we get a little bit crossed up. And, and uh, what, what, you know, I know as a husband that I don't just immediately say, well, oh, well, I said a dumb thing. Isn't it a great day? Let's have fun. I kind of know there's going to be a period, uh, what do we call it? There's going to be a cool-off period after that. Let's call it that. You know, where Karen is praying for my soul and asking that the Lord will give me more wisdom. She's very sanctified, right? We know that's going to happen. In other words, we're going to experience a certain amount of alienation for a little while because of the dumb thing you said or the dumb thing that you did. That's the way human relationships work. Sometimes even parents, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do this, uh, but sometimes parents reinforce this by when their child does something disobedient or disrespectful, they tell them to go in their room and be by themselves and think about it. And, uh, and we don't mean to say this, but what we're saying is I don't really want to continue in a relationship with you right now. So I need some space from you. You need some space from me. And the problem is that we apply this kind of thinking to God. And it just doesn't apply to him. Because he has washed us with his blood. When he interacts with us, he does not see the stupid thing we said or thought or didn't say or the thing we did. He sees us perfectly righteous because the righteousness that is the perfect work of Jesus Christ has been applied to us and we have received it by faith. So right after the stupid comment, you can say, Lord, forgive me and be in his perfect fellowship because we don't need the waters of purification anymore. We are free in Christ. I know this is mind-boggling for us, but what would our lives be like if we actually stepped into this reality that Jesus has removed the need for the waters of purification and that he has freed us because of the work he has done in his hour? But let's talk secondly about overflowing joy. Now, um, this is where we need to be a little awkward. I am keenly aware that sitting in this room with me and watching online are about 40% uh, Baptist, right? And I know this whole story makes my Baptist brothers and sisters just a tiny bit uncomfortable because of all this wine. I mean, especially if we're talking 120 to 150 gallons of wine, you know, right? And that, that makes us a, a little uncomfortable. But without trying to poke at you, I'm saying this in love as much as I can, but in the Bible, wine equals joy. 
Wine equals joy. If you want a good example of that, in Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes. Him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities that inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. And people say, wow, that's a lot of wine. The mountains are flowing with wine. This is a a picture of joy after sorrow, after the judgment of God, that they have uh, reunion and restoration, and it's illustrated by wine. Now, some of you are saying, but wasn't wine just another word in the Bible for Welch's grape juice? Uh, one, they didn't have the technology to just make grape juice that stayed grape juice. It became wine. Uh, I learned this back in the day watching my old Andy Griffith shows uh, that inevitably... Uh, there was an episode where Barney Fife was sipping on the apple cider and, uh, and he increasingly got punchy and started slurring his words. And, uh, you know, it only, for Barney, it only take one drink of anything with alcohol in it and he was gone. And, uh, and, and Andy had this great expression. He said, that cider's gone hard. And what does that mean? That the, the sugars in the, the, the cider eventually fermented. And and without modern refrigeration and sealing techniques, grape juice turned into wine. Now, it might have been bad wine, but it it just would have happened. And so for those of you who are like, no, I'm pretty sure it was was grape juice. Well, one more proof that comes from my own experience, and then I'll move on. I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable. I'm just trying to let the Bible speak. I'm going to give give all the Baptists their little shout-out in just one second. Just hang with me. But when I grew up as a Southern Baptist kid, uh, we would have the Lord's Supper. And uh, afterward, we had real glass shot glasses that we used in the communion trays. I'm sorry, communion cups. Everybody else in the world calls them shot glasses. That's what they are. Anyway. And so anyway, we used the glass ones, and so we didn't throw them away. You had to collect them from the little holes that had been constructed, you know, precisely for that purpose beside the hymnals and the offering envelopes. And so I would always volunteer to go and collect, you know, the used uh, communion glasses from from the worship space. Uh, But I would always leave this full of a tray as I possibly could. Why? Because I like I like Welch's grape juice. It was great. And so I would go up into the balcony. I know why you people are up there. I would go up into the balcony with my mostly full communion tray, and I'd sit there and drink every single one. Uh, It was like a snack, an after-church snack. I mean, my family wouldn't get out of there for another hour and a half, so I had plenty of time. And I can tell you this. That the Bible says wine makes the heart glad, but all that Welch's grape juice did nothing for my heart. It gave me a tummy ache, right? And uh, so that's just from personal antidote experience. And so when we talk about wine, we're talking about wine. Now, shout out to my Baptist. This is what you've been waiting for. Uh, When we talk about this guy that the wine is taken to here, 
the master of the feast, the ESV calls it. We don't really know what to call it. Most likely it was a person who was a guest who was honored with uh, the distinction of making sure that the food and drink were distributed appropriately for the people who were there. It's kind of like a first century version of a designated driver. Their job was to make sure things happen in an appropriate way. One of the things that that person did was make sure the wine was diluted appropriately. Wine, yes, that wine that makes the heart glad was diluted as from anywhere between a third, in other words, two parts water uh, to one part wine, all the way to one part water, I mean one part wine and ten parts water. And so there you go. My baptists are like, whew. Uh, yeah, they, didn't, they weren't just straight up drinking the wine. They were drinking the wine mixed with water. So there you go. So it didn't have that much alcohol in it. So hopefully that makes everybody feel more comfortable. Are we good? Okay. So wine, where were we? Overflowing joy. Wine in the Bible is about blessing and joy. And what I love in this text is that Jesus made a ton of wine. I want you to just think about this for a second. 120 to 150 gallons of wine. I know that you don't think of wine in gallons, so I did the math for you. That's uh, anywhere between 640 and 960 bottles of wine. There was no town in the northern part of Israel big enough to need that much wine for a party, even if it did last seven days. What this is, is a miracle of super abundance. Super abundance. I love it uh, when Paul is talking to the Corinthian church uh, about giving. He has this amazing line in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, in verse 8. Uh, not about what we give God, but what God gives us. And this is what he says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Do you think Paul had something to say there? Uh, listen for the word all and every. I'm going to read it one more time because I know we don't believe this. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, that you may abound in every good work. I love it. Paul, in the middle of a passage, talking about the generosity of the people of the church, cannot help but extol the incomparable generosity of God himself. And I believe that this is such a beautiful picture of that. Why do I stress this? Because to be honest, as many of our older commentators uh, made a comment about this passage, uh, one uh, guy who was an old Scottish pastor uh, said it should be a sin for Christians to be dour. Because Christ has come to bring us joy. And I don't think we believe that. I think that when we think about joy and about God, we think he meets it out to us kind of like water out of one of those little gerbil water bottles. You know what I'm talking about? Do, do people even have gerbils anymore? 
or hamsters. The gerbil water bottle was the water bottle that was upside down in the, uh, in the, the, the exciting little maze that we created for our, our little gerbil. And, and, and the water wouldn't just pour out. It's kind of like one of these new high-tech kids' sippy cups. So it was completely upside down, but all you would see is just a bubble at the end of it. And a, and a gerbil would, you know, it basically has to come up and do all the work. Right, you know, and he's gotten all of like 0.001 ounces, right? And he's been there for 10 minutes because I think just barely letting any water out. And to be honest, I think most of us Christians think that's how God is with joy. Well, that's, that's enough for you. We don't want you to get too excited about that. Paul says God is able to make all grace abound to you in every way, all the time. Jesus here makes, you know, between 640 and 960 bottles of wine. Why? To show the super abundance of joy. I love it. Herman Ribas, who a uh, Dutch uh, theologian, New Testament scholar, uh, he beautifully points out that this is not just saying that Jesus gives us joy, even though that is true, but he argues that in this story, while we may compare Jesus to the bridegroom or to the master of the feast, that in the book of John, it would be far more appropriate for us to understand that in this story, Jesus identifies with the wine. He is the wine of joy that brings true life. Jesus says this to his disciples. I have come that you will have joy and have joy to the full. You know, Jesus understands that he is everything that wine was pointing to in terms of the indication of the blessing of God and the peace and availability of joy in your life. He is that. Ritterboss goes on to say that we see this because if you think of the rest of the story, Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life who has come from heaven. I am uh, the water that will quench your thirst. I am the resurrection and the life. In the book of John, when these stories and miracles happen, Jesus is saying, this shows you who I am. And I know. That that may sound like a small distinction to say that Jesus uh, doesn't just give us joy, but he is our joy because it is in relationship with him that we will find the true, lasting, and abundant joy that we so strongly seek. So often, I believe, we get hung up on the wrong side of that distinction. And we say, well, if I'm true to Jesus, I think about Jesus, I read about Jesus, I perform for Jesus, I tell other people about Jesus, then maybe Jesus will dole out some joy to me. And we look to Jesus as a means to an end without understanding that he is the end. He is the one who brings joy. He is joy in and of itself. I think we understand this when we're around people who in any way are life-giving or encouraging and we never miss that time with them because we know just hanging out with them gives us a joy in our heart 
because it's not the food they serve or the, the fluids they, they pour. It is not the presence they give. It is them. They are a giver of joy. Jesus is the ultimate giver of joy. Now, I know, I know. There are some of you sitting here saying, I've been a Christian a long time. And I don't know that I would ever say that Jesus is my joy. And you might be tempted to find your joy somewhere else, maybe in someone else or in something else. My encouragement is come and know Jesus better. You don't know him as well as you need to. You don't understand who he is. You don't see what he's done. You don't understand Jesus if being in relationship with him does not give you a deep abiding and overflowing joy. And so the answer is not to try to find it somewhere else, but to ask that God would show us the beauty and the glory of Jesus all the more. Do you notice at the end of the story, that's exactly what happened to the disciples in this story. In verse 11, it says this is the first of his signs, which most people believe not only refers to the fact that this is the first in his public ministry, but this is a first in the sense that it sets the course for his public ministry that he did in Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, there was this miracle, not only the power that Jesus had to turn water into wine, but the idea that in Jesus is the superabundance of joy that we all so desperately crave being made in the image of God caused the disciples to say, this guy is where it's at. Now, they had already believed him to some extent, but they grew in their understanding of him. Because they saw his glory in a different light. And do you know that's what every single one of us can still be doing, whether we've been a Christian for an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, or a century. I don't know if any of you are up to a century yet. There's somebody getting close in here, I'm sure. We can always see the glory of Jesus Christ and know him more and grow in our joy in him. Uh, two last things. One, well, one last thing. How about that? I love what the text says. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher who made no comment about the alcohol content of wine in his sermon on this text. He wouldn't have had a problem with it, just to be clear. Baptists in England are just different. There's a good joke about Baptists in London and Baptists in England. Uh, I'll I'm, have to move on. Ask, you can ask me later. So, verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine. He did not know where it came from. Those servants who drew the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people had drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Charles Spurgeon's whole sermon was, Jesus is the good wine now. In other words, here in this text, what we see is that Jesus in this miracle did not create mediocre five-buck chuck. Hey, that's where my Presbyterians are. Thank you. I was wondering. 
that's insider code. You know that's cheap wine at Trader Joe's. But anyway, there are only like 12 of you here. I'm sure you're online, watching online. Uh, Presbyterians are like, I don't believe it's the Lord's providence I drive in the snow today. But it's, uh, it's okay. He didn't make bad wine. He made the best wine. The master of the feast, remember, his whole job is to make sure that the food and the drink is being distributed so everyone can enjoy themselves. He knows, his palate is refined enough that he knows the difference between junk wine and great wine. And he says, you pulled out the best now. And in this, Spurgeon pointed out that even though the world may entice us to say this is good, this is better, this is the best, that only Jesus is the good wine that will bring us true and lasting joy. And and I know we will try to satisfy our souls with everything else, with, with relationships, with pleasures, with adventures, with experiences, and we're looking for the best wine. And we have some of those experiences, and we say to ourselves as we sit and savor that relationship, that event, that experience, that material thing, we say, wow, isn't that really good? Wow, look at how fun that was. Here, look at my pictures. But in the end of the day, we still have to find the next one, the next person, the next event, the next experience, the next adventure, the next material thing. Why? Because we're desperately seeking the better wine and Jesus is it Jesus is it you see I don't have to worry about how many other options and distractions there are out there for the people of God my concern is that you see the excellence of Jesus Christ and the all soul satisfying pleasure and joy that is found in him That's why every week we come and rehearse his glory because we have to continue to encourage one another to say no to the pursuit of the better wine everywhere else and to say, no, we found it. We found it. It's Jesus and it's better. And so here's my encouragement to finish. Have you exhausted yourself on all the junk wine the world has to offer? And would you like to not just have a taste, but to be able to guzzle the best wine of joy that is in Jesus Christ? May, they, may the Spirit give us power and grace to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And yet we still pursue everything else as though it'll give us the joy that only you can give. If only that person will think well of me. If only I got a compliment from my manager. If only I got that grade on the test. If only that uh, girl or boy would notice me and show me attention, then, then I would be able to say I have joy. And none of those things, no matter how wonderful or great, will satisfy us because we were made for the soul-satisfying joy that's only found in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, forgive me for where I build my own cisterns that can hold no water. And, Lord, help me. And the people here in this room, watching online, listening later, help them 
Lord, to recognize the futility of their pursuit of true joy, and may they believe in Christ, the wine of the feast, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.